This is the Early Childhood Research Podcast, and you're listening to Episode 11. Welcome to the Early Childhood Research Podcast, where we tell you how the latest research can help in your home and in your classroom. Welcome, it's great to have you here. I'm Liz, and I'm the host of the Early Childhood Research Podcast. We're part of the Education Podcast Network, so if you're looking for more podcasts to listen to, pop over to www.edupodcastnetwork.com. This is episode 11, and today I'm switching focus from pure research to practical experience. I'm interviewing two educators, Jennifer and Brad Ratcliffe, who are also the parents of two boys with autism. We'll be talking about ways to integrate children with special needs into the classroom, the effective use of support teachers, how family life is changed and the extra pressures that autism brings. I've split the interview into two parts rather than making one extra long episode. So this is part one and you'll find the rest of the interview in episode 12. Jen has written a book called This Was Not on the Brochure. It's a book about how to live a great life, even when it has handed you what you did not expect. You can find This Was Not on the Brochure on iBooks, and I'll have a link to it on my blog. Brad is working on a super useful app, and together they're writing another book, an A to Z of helpful tips for parents of children with autism. You can find the transcript of this interview, plus the extra links by going to lizesearlylearningspot.com clicking on the podcast tab near the top and looking for episode 11. Just so you know, Jen is no longer in the classroom. She's now a successful businesswoman, which started out because she needed to be able to work from home in order to be there for her boys. Now to the interview. Jen and Brad Ratcliffe, I'm so glad you could join me today. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I've been really looking forward to this interview because although this is a research-based podcast and both of you have worked in or are currently working in education, our focus today is for you to speak to us as parents, to give us an understanding of working with children with autism from a parent's perspective. You have two boys, Cameron and Kobe, that were diagnosed with moderate to severe autism when they were young. At what ages were they diagnosed and what behaviours did you notice in the lead up to being diagnosed? We have Cameron and Kobe. Cameron was around three years old when he actually went for his assessment. It was on his third birthday, actually. I remember that quite clearly, which was a little bit not what we had been hoping for or expecting. But, uh, and Kobe was a little bit younger, two and a half years, I think he was when he went for his assessment. So the reason we took them was initially with Cameron to start with, we thought he might have had a hearing problem and we weren't sure if he could hear us because quite often he would be in his own little world or we would be calling him and he would not seem to be responding. It, we didn't, it seemed like he wasn't understanding. So initially we took him for a hearing test and that came back clear. But even by that stage, we'd started to realize we'd spoken to some different people and we'd 
started to think it was something to do with autism. So what we noticed really, yeah, that he'd um, go into his own shell and socially he didn't seem to be interested in other people or even us. As his parents, we tried really, really hard to engage him and it was a really challenging thing to do. He was just very obsessed with his behaviours that he loved, like lining things up, matching things he would watch a few videos over and over and over and over and over and over again so a lot of repetitive behaviors and he also did stop talking he had actually started to in terms of expressive language he he was pretty much on track with that and he had picked up quite a few words up until about 12 to 18 months but after about 18 months to two years we'd noticed that those words and that language had had dropped off significantly so that was what we'd noticed with Cameron Kobe was a bit different because he uh we just thought oh it would be very unlikely to have another child on the spectrum well that's not actually the case if you have one child on the spectrum there's actually quite a high uh, likelihood of having another one that's maybe not on the same place in the spectrum but can still be on the spectrum so we he was developing again quite neurotypically to start certainly his personality was that he engaged a lot more with us and other people too but again by the time he was about 18 months to two years old he also started to regress went back into his shell stopped talking social situations were too much for him he would try and escape from those and he was very much into the same sort of things obsessive behaviors repetitive behaviors lining up um, addictions to Disney and things like that and a lot of people said to us well it's probably just a learned behavior because he's observed his brother and that he hasn't had uh, he hasn't had any difference in the way he's seen behaviors modeled so it was just a modeling thing but we thought no we knew even though he was a little bit different in some ways uh, it still looked like the same sort of triad of impairments uh, that are indicative of autism so we had him tested a bit sooner which initially the pediatrician wasn't so keen to diagnose straight away a lot of the time you hear that sometimes um, they're a little bit hesitant but one thing that we realized was that if we wanted to get help and get him into support and into onto lists for support services that we needed to get that diagnosis so yeah we went back so he said come back six months later we went back six months later and he had he was diagnosed as well that's quite a long process then yes yes so when you talk about getting on lists for therapies how long a list are you talking about well it can be years i remember with kobe when it came time for him to go to school uh, we could not get him into any of the support schools or the autism specific aspect school um, he had to go to a mainstream school in a support classroom because at that time there was just no places. So. And he was only four and a half when um, mm. we put him into the support class too, so he was very young to be starting school in, in a mainstream school as well. We did that because we, it was really quite difficult to get a continuity in, in, with any sort of early intervention. So we just thought having he was doing chopping around, doing this, that and the other every every day was something else so we know that with children on the spectrum that they do uh, appreciate and tend to thrive a bit better in a regular routine so we were trying to get him into something like that but yeah it was very hard even as far as schooling to get him into something it took yeah it was actually all of his kindergarten year he spent 
in a mainstream school in a support class which was not really suited to him and at the end of that year they said oh look this is not the right setting for him and which we knew that he was totally non-verbal at that stage as well so it was a little bit tricky so he ended up going over to the aspect school which is the school for children with autism and so did you notice a significant difference just with how you felt about his care and how he reacted to care Yeah, that's right. Once he was in a a smaller class with people who totally understood and were trained in autism and how to work with children on the spectrum, it was certainly a lot better. A lot of the behaviours that he was exhibiting in the mainstream school, they were a challenge, of course. He would, he would wet himself, but it wasn't because he had a... They, they said to me, I think he's got a bladder infection, but it wasn't that. It was that he right. didn't want to go to the school assembly. They were doing a practice for the opening. It was a new school. Three times a week, 40 minutes, he, didn't, he wasn't coping with that. So because he, he couldn't express himself in those early right. years, he just wet himself. And so that was one right. way of getting out of assembly. But then instead of realising that he was trying to communicate with us or his teachers, they didn't realise what was happening. So, yeah, we thought he might have had a bladder infection, but he didn't. It was that um, he just wasn't coping with what was expected of him in that mainstream setting. So, yeah, once he changed, it was much better because it was just a place where he, even though he was in a smaller class in the mainstream school, he was still expected to fit in with the wider school community. And that, that part was very challenging for him. So, yeah, so moving to a smaller school and an autism specific school was great. Yeah. In your book, Jen, you mentioned briefly that you tried lots of therapies and diets and classes with Cameron. I imagine that many parents go on a similar journey in those first few years. And while all kids are different, can you comment on what things you tried that you felt had some positive effect? Yes, well, we did try a lot of different things and we still do now. I don't think you really ever kind of stop with whatever you think can be helpful. So the first thing that we did with both boys very early was speech therapy. We would go to a weekly speech therapy class, which I think was great and it was really helpful just to see how the our speech therapist, Catherine, was able to engage with our boys and interact with them. That was actually great because then we could come home and utilise some of those techniques, which was really helpful. And we also tried diet as well. One of the biggest things that I think a lot of parents who have children on the spectrum are encouraged to try the gluten-free and casein-free diet. So we did that with both of the boys. We didn't actually notice much of a difference with that I was really hoping that we would but we didn't yeah we didn't see much of a difference because actually these caffeine free at the same time (laughs) (laughs) I think we would have needed to uh, have up the caffeine but it was a hard one because they're very routine with their diet very fussy and even now to this day the boys are very particular about what they'll eat what they'll even try what they'll even smell there's a lot of tests a piece of food or drink has to pass to even get tasted so yeah so that was a tricky one but we didn't see much difference but some people do we did uh, early intervention as well so that whatever group or workshop we would go to autism specific play groups just whatever was around whatever was available whatever we could get into we did that as well as regular preschool too and uh, that was interesting, especially with Cameron, because he was he's 15 now, but he was the first child that they'd had through the right. preschool with autism. So there was a lot of learning taking place for everybody there. Right. 
But yeah, I think that was important too, so that he did have exposure to neurotypical children when he was a preschooler. He didn't always engage in what was happening there in the preschool, but I think he was still good he was there. Currently, I mean, right up until today, we're using compression singlets or compression right. vests. It's like a, a chesty bonds, a singlet, yeah. but it's it's kind of like it looks like active wear or some sort of something that you'd use to wear to the gym it's just a, it's got a, a quite a firm fit and so just because of the fact that having a having some deep pressure can help to calm the the sensory and the nervous system of people on the spectrum so the boys wear a singlet now on our recent plane flight to Hong Kong they wore those and that seemed to work well and they have no troubles with wearing them so we wear those and even supplements I lots of different supplements we try essential oils for calming or for sleeping or for thinking we try uh, we've got a spray at the moment which is an oxytocin spray that we try before school a nasal spray so trying that and oh, we um, have these gummy bears um, that, that we use as well. Yeah, they're called mana bears and they actually have some nutritional benefits. So okay. they look like lollies though. So that's good because it's not always easy to get great nutrition into the kids. So right. yeah, so yeah, little mana bears from a company called Manatech. So the kids like those and I've tried them. They don't taste too bad. So um, yeah, so lots of different things. Whatever we see, I mean, we can't try absolutely everything, but we try whatever is within our capacity that we think that the kids will actually yeah that they'll be open yeah. to so yeah we try a lot of different things i guess the key with all those things is persevering you know yeah, you might not see the result <laughs> yeah well and, and it is and especially if you're going with the uh, the gluten-free thing i mean if anyone's right. a attempted to eat gluten-free you, you know oh, it doesn't not, taste very good so to, to get a child that has limited taste yeah. to certain foods to get them to eat gluten-free is quite difficult, but sometimes if you just sort of persevere... Especially at birthday parties when the birthday cake comes out. Yes, yeah. and then you have to give them that lovely... Cardboard cake? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's probably come a long way since then, so I'm sure it's a lot better than what we tried. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, there've been a lot of developments in gluten-free because there's so many people now who need that anyway. Yes, in the shopping aisle, you can see a lot more products that are gluten-free than there ever used to be that's yes. right yeah so all those things can be helpful that's yeah, just a few things and yeah there's even other things that you can have uh, i think it's called i'm not sure how to pronounce it chelation or chelation to help with a lot of children on the spectrum can harbor heavy metals in their body like mercury oh. and things like that so even products to help with their ridding their body of heavy toxins and and heavy metals that can obviously if it's impacting on the gut has an impact on the brain and be therefore behaviors naturopaths can be very helpful as well but again it just depends what you can get into your child if they'll take the drops or they'll take that medicine medicines and things like that have to normally be snuck sneakily tricked <laughs> using every form of trickery to get them into food so it just sounds like so much thinking and so much work and so much experimentation it seems exhausting i don't think people can understand really how much ongoing work all this is yeah and it's not so much that you're trying to fix the child but what you are looking at is trying to help them to live their best life and to be as calm as possible and to be as happy as possible and to be able to experience as many opportunities as possible it can be costly financially costly as well as uh as far as time and effort and energy emotionally too. So, costly yeah yeah that's why it's disappointing when sometimes when things don't make an impact and you think they might and yeah, yeah. but 
you got to try everything as that, whatever's possible. I mean, there's some things we didn't try, like ABA, applied behavior therapy. We didn't do that because that was out of our capacity financially. Right. I think it's like forty thousand dollars a child, and even if wow. we could have found a way to do it for one, we couldn't have done it for both, and so we couldn't have chosen which one it would have been. Right. So yeah, so we didn't do that. But some parents do that, and they find that that can be quite successful too. But again, you just need the the time and the the, mm. the financial capacity to do that. Mm. Mm. Brad, Jen wrote that many fathers in particular have great difficulty accepting that their child has been diagnosed with autism, but that you were on board straight away. Why do you think it's harder in general for men to accept? Well, I think generally men find it hard to accept uh, because they see it more as a weakness or as a reflection of themselves as a man or a father. Certainly in some cultures, that their background in certain European countries, they find it very difficult to accept and they also see it as a failure as a man. But uh, the acceptance issue can cause a, a huge strain on the marriage or the, the relationship. So especially in the early years, like mothers, they uh, tend to be the ones that are, are at home with the kids uh, 24-7. They're the ones that are going to the speech therapies and the, and the mother's groups and, and they're seeing the behaviours, they're seeing them not playing with the other kids and they're, they're living it. Uh, whereas the, the fathers generally sort of get a chance to escape from all that right. uh, when they go to work. And then they're coming home and they've missed all the meltdowns and they've missed all, all, all right. the behaviours. Well, that, some of them. Well, some of them. <laughs> I imagine some of them could blame the wife as well. Yeah, and so it's hard when the mother is trying to come up with strategies and she's trying to implement them and trying to force the husband to get on board with it and and he's like, whoa, whoa, you know. So they generally can cause a a lot of difficulties in marriages. And and, we've seen that. And um, we've seen it a lot with with, um, a lot of the families that we've had, uh, some of the boys, uh, classmates, a lot of families are no longer together. Yeah, um, which is which makes it hard too and relationships yes. can be hard anyway but then having a child with special needs in the mix can just be the straw that breaks the camel's back yes. yeah so i mean for, for me it, it was about getting on the same page and so that's uh, i think is the key you've got to get on the same page uh, as a mother as whether close you, to the page as possible not being stuck on the on the introduction <laughs> or, or they're stuck in denial yeah or, or stuck in denial i've seen it because i work in a support class at schools. I see it with some of the parents that uh, I've had in some of the classes that I've worked in. Certainly some parents, it's more about fixing the child than supporting the child with the disability. So uh, it can be quite difficult. I think men just want to fix things. That's the problem. Yeah. Is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jen, before your boys came along, you were a primary school teacher. Knowing what you know now about children with autism, do you think the average teacher is well prepared to manage special needs children in their mainstream classrooms? Would you as a teacher have felt confident? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it was uh, two decades ago that I did my teacher training and back then there wasn't a lot of time spent on training for children with special needs. So definitely not. No, I would not have felt very confident myself. And I think what happens with a lot of people is that they kind of learn as they go on the job. 
Because that was my experience and it was 20 years ago, I actually contacted a friend of mine who just finished her teacher training last year and I asked her that exact same question just to see where things were in 2016. And she said to me that even still today, there really isn't enough done in terms of training at university and that she said that she would still find it very hard today. I mean, we both sort of said it does depend on the individual child and what special needs they have and also that the severity of the special need. I mean, mainstreaming and integration is fantastic if the disability or the challenge that the child has is on the minor side. If it's not too severe, but when it starts to become more of a moderate or severe challenge, it's a bit harder to integrate them successfully because... A lot of the time, they're not really wanting to be involved in the lessons. To start with, probably too many children in the class, as far as autism goes, for them to be able to cope. The child, from what I can understand, could possibly just go into survival mode, not learning mode. And it could just make it very hard then on the teacher and on the child and on the other students as well. So I think special support schools and certainly support classes within mainstream schools are still very much needed and uh, the more that teachers can be trained and educated and whether that be at uni or in service is really important because in the last well 15 years since we've had Cameron the incidence of autism diagnosis has increased hugely I mean I remember when I was a child we never even knew there was such a thing as autism we need to have these classes and schools available I think sometimes there's certain pushes with the powers that be that are about integrating and everybody being all in together. But the reality is for those kids, especially if if social overwhelm is a Mm. significant issue, it's just not going to work. Like it might sound nice in theory, Mm. but I just know that, well, especially our youngest son, or both of them really, we did try it in the church we were at and they would just run out. They would physically Mm. just uh, try and run away so that's hard to teach somebody who just all they want to do is get away the young lady that I was talking to who's now teaching said that she was in a prac with a a child there who had autism and because his sensory needs were so high he had a little mini tramp at the back of the room and she said that's which is great to have that there that's great to have that implemented there for him as a strategy but the thing was he was mostly there he was bored so then that could that triggered some negative behavior um but then mostly he was on the trampoline and it wasn't really the best setting for him but we you know i don't know maybe that's where his parents wanted him to be but he might have thrived and learned more and had a better educational experience in a different setting but that was in a mainstream class and um, i think he had she said he had moderate autism so yeah brad you work as a support teacher in a primary school with children that are non-verbal or who only speak a little and might not be comfortable with eye contact and so forth what suggestions can you give to teachers who are trying to develop a relationship with them well, I guess the key straight off is not to, to force it. Mm. Uh, just have some patience with it. Be calm and softly spoken. Basically, when they're ready to bond with you, they will. Uh, even right. if it's only in a small, minute way that they show it. Like in any relationship, a bond is formed by uh, finding common interests. So obviously it's difficult if the child is nonverbal. You know, when we talk to each other in a relationship, you find out what they're interested by asking them. Uh, what sporting team do you like? Uh, do you like playing cricket? So those are the things you right. can't ask them. So you have to find other ways. So you might have to ask parents what uh, interests they have at home, right. um, or even just observing it, what they play with or, or watch uh, in the classroom. It might be a movie character or, or a song 
that they like. Um, and that way you can sort of introduce uh, that to the class routine. Um, and right. that, that may sort of bring a, a, a small glance your way. You know, if you right. sort of put, put a song on that they like, they might kind of kind of interact with you a little bit because that, it gives a joy to them because it's a song that they like. Right. And you've put it on. You might be in the classroom dancing. So it's uh, certainly, certainly uh, it's a hard relationship to form especially for a teacher in a mainstream school because they probably not but you used would to it. you would do things like in the morning circle routine each student would have a special song or something that they really liked or i remember you've told me before you play certain games in the playground with some of the students that they like star wars so you would play that game with him rather than trying to make him connect to you you were coming yeah. to him and making yeah. that connection yeah definitely in, in the circumstances of a child with a lot of behavioral issues i've just played the games that he wanted to play he loved mm. role-playing uh, like Indiana Jones or, oh, right. or Star Wars or Doctor Who or things like that so you and just, I'm sure you didn't mind playing no. those games either. I, I, I did do well in, in playing the role of because uh, he likes all those yeah so that worked out well but yeah a lot of kids on the spectrum do like movies and songs and characters yeah. so if you can get up on your Disney and Pixar you'll be right yeah right <laughs> So for teachers then, they need to look for the little signals rather than hoping for bigger, more obvious signals. They need to be really pleased when they see all those little signs that the children are connecting. Absolutely, yeah, because that's the key. And like any child that has any delay, you're not going to see the results that a, a mainstream class will see within the year moving on with their learning. And I've been in a support class for seven years and it's a, a K to six and we have some kids that are still in the early stage one level of their maths and literacy. So you're only seeing small progression and then you might see a couple of steps back again. So you just sort of got to enjoy uh, and look at those small steps that they've made in their learning. But it's a very slow process sometimes because that's just how it is. If I had a moderately autistic child in my kindergarten classroom, how should I talk to the other kids to help them understand that child's needs. Are there rules or reminders that would help? Yeah, there's a program called the Sixth Sense Program. You talk about what all the five senses are, but then the Sixth Sense is a social sense. Explaining to the mainstream children or the neurotypical children that a person who has autism does not necessarily have that sixth sense. So they might not know how to communicate and make friends. They might not know how to asked to join into a game they might not know if they're being maybe rude or saying something inappropriate or butting in or whatever so it's a the sixth sense program there's a lot more to it than that but it's just helping the other children in the classroom to understand that johnny our friend with autism might need help or understanding with this or that or these are the areas and doing that in a way that's still going to bring value and respect to the student with autism so yeah so that and that way the other kids can understand how they can help and be supportive to their special friend that they have as parents what can a teacher do how can they communicate with you in a way that would give you confidence that a that teacher cares for your child b they're going to give their best to your child and c your child is safe and in good hands lots of communication <laughs> i think yeah yeah that's that's the truth uh we're very lucky because we have a communication book so every day we write in that so we will write not every parent and teacher maybe does this but we do so we'll write 
how the boys have been going overnight or over the weekend or anything exciting that's happened because our boys can't express uh, what they've done to their teacher so we fill her in and keep her in the loop as to what's happening at home and then she does the same for us at school so every day she will write uh, anything that's happened that's notable that's good whatever they've enjoyed whatever they've tried whatever they've done and if there's any problems and that sort of thing and if it's something that we can't sort out through our written communication in our communication book then we would just pick up the phone and we have a phone call or we can go in and have a meeting and we normally meet with the teachers early on in the year and then um, normally it's every term or certainly every uh, six months so we'll, we'll meet a few times and that's the sort of thing that really that we want from the teacher generally parents will want it's not so much that the teacher tells you I, I care about your child or that we're going to, you just assume that they're going to be doing the best that they can, but meeting with them and getting a feeling uh, and getting that connection with the teacher helps parents, I think, especially if the child is limited verbally to make you feel that the child will be in safe hands and you can feel good about that. And if there is a problem, you can always talk to the principal if you feel like it's not the right fit for your child or yeah. the teacher's not the right fit. Sometimes that happens too. That's, that's how things go but uh yeah just really a lot of communication and also with the communication the key is also with what the parents communicate what's happening at home for instance if the child hasn't had a a good night's sleep if the parents don't communicate that then we're as a teacher as i know when i'm in a classroom if i'm wondering why little johnny's not attentive this morning yeah a little bit of communication written in a book to say johnny uh, woke up at three and didn't go back to sleep then you you might get a bit more of an understanding of why he's not performing at his best today so yeah yeah, communication is definitely a, a key for that If you could choose three strategies or priorities for a mainstream teacher to incorporate into their inclusive classroom, what would they be? I'm very sorry, but we're going to have to break from the interview here. You can listen to the rest of this interview with Brad and Jen Ratcliffe in the next episode. We talk about the most important strategies to implement in an inclusive classroom, the goals parents have for their children and how to make the best use of support teachers. Jen also talks a little about her book. Brad lets us know about a great app he has coming out and we get a sneak peek into a new book they're writing for parents of children with autism. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Jen and Brad. If you go to the show notes, you'll find the written transcript of this interview, plus a link to Jen's website where you can meet her family. There's also a link to the book that Jen mentioned, The Sixth Sense by Carol Gray, which is a program to help neurotypical children understand their friend with autism. Just head over to lizesearlylearningspot.com, click on the podcast tab and look for episode 11. If you've enjoyed this interview, it would help us out if you went to iTunes to submit a rating and review. If you're looking for more education podcasts, I recommend you go to truthforteachers.com and take a look at Angela Watson's weekly 10-minute podcasts. She tackles student questions like whether we should use rewards in our classroom, but also teacher-focused issues such as how to make our jobs less stressful. That's truthforteachers.com. Thank you for joining me to learn a little more about early childhood education and I wish you happy teaching and learning. Thanks for listening to the Early Childhood Research Podcast at www.lizesearlylearningspot.com.